Hello and welcome to the For the Win podcast. I'm Ted Berg, joined on the line by my, I don't want to say least favorite colleague, but by Mr. Luke Curtinine. <laughs> What's up, Ted? I can't, I can't say that because you're doing me the favor of being on the podcast. So <laughs> in other settings, I might more, more thoroughly troll you. But now I have to say, today, for today and for this, the next, what just happened? Did you hear that? No. Oh, perfect. Uh, I had an autoplay ad pop up on, I, I believe on For the Win, which usually doesn't happen, but uh, there was like a, a brief, I got a brief rock music interlude in this podcast, but we're going to power right through it. Uh, anyway, point is, uh, I appreciate it. I know you're heading out of town soon, so for the next for the next uh, 40 minutes or so, you are my number one colleague. Thank you, Ted. It means so much. You know, it's... Uh... Yeah, it would have been bad news if I had declined this podcast. Let's just, let's just leave it there. Then I would have had Charles on, and all we would have do- done was made fun of you. <laughs> and, like, England in general. I mean, did you see – I did you happen to catch uh, Liam Gallagher's performance on the Colbert Report last night? Or not oh, the Colbert oh, Report, on oh, the, the, you know, the late show. Uh, it wasn't good. He played I, – I just thought – he played solo music. I thought it really sucked, personally. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I actually watched this awesome documentary about Oasis, who, you know, I am genetically engineered to love, and I do. <laughs> but um, it, it was just about. It was kind of you know it was about the genius of these two brothers, but also about how they just kind of have perpetually. Uh, Liam and Noah have just hated each other like their entire life. It's kind of sad, right? Like it you. Is. Yeah, it really is. Like, I always think about that with, like, the Beatles, even. Like, with, with Paul McCartney and John Lennon, it's like, they had all this success. But, like, they started out as friends and ended up not liking each other. And it's like, well, what's more satisfying? Like, being the Beatles, like, the greatest band of all time? Or, like, having a friend, you know? Well, yeah. yeah, and what's weird about this is that there was almost never a point where they did like each other. It's a really weird relationship. You know, it wasn't even like an up and down thing. It was like they either were able to put up with each other or one of them was so annoyed at the other, the entire thing just fell apart. Like they still hate each other now. I I, I don't quite understand it. It's especially weird for it to be within a family like that. You know, like were were they like, were they, I don't. I don't know anything about. I, I assume I know way less about Oasis's backstory than you do. Uh, <laughs> again, based on our accents, I think people can probably determine that. But were they like? Were they like trained since birth to be rock stars or something? Like, was were they just under a ton of pressure, or did they just like, hey, we don't get along, but we work well together creatively? So what? I what? According to this documentary, which is you know Liam and Noel are both sort of. They're driving the documentary, so I'm inclined to believe them. Liam was sort of the gifted, like McCartney type, you know, mm-hmm. saw saw guitar, was fascinated by it, was like um, he, he was kind of a pothead growing up, but he like wrote a lot of songs. And uh, Noel apparently had no interest in music until the age of like 16, where I think he literally got hit in the head with something he said, um, and then suddenly like he was just all about music. So it was actually not. It was actually Noel. Um, who put the band together and Liam then sort of worked into it and was kind of the mastermind behind it all. But Noel kind of liked the spotlight and was, um, uh, and and was, would sort of recognize the brilliance of Liam while also simultaneously not really wanting him to have the spotlight. So it just sort of led to this kind of constant tension. And, 
um, you know, knowing that like his, you know, Noel's attitude was like kind of knowing, I think that Liam was sort of the more gifted artist of the two, but, um, but, but never really wanting to like pay that due in public. Hello? Said? Uh, am I back? You're, ba you're okay. back. Oh. All right, we're going to power right through. We're going to power right through. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, I hit the mute button on my microphone for a second. Uh, but I was, I was about to say I want to get to sports in a second. But in terms of starting a band, I know that this is, that is a big, it's a big challenge because you need to have creative people in your band but you also need a, at least one person in the band who has some semblance of like organizational skills or else you'll never rehearse and you'll never write songs and you'll never play shows. So I've been in bands where you know I didn't have that role and I really loved the band and everybody was playing well and playing creatively but like we just never played. Uh, and then I've been in bands where it was like I didn't really like it so much but there was someone who was driven enough to get us out on stage and have us recording songs and stuff like that. Uh, so it's always that sort of, there is, like, I feel like that tension is almost inherent in, like, most bands. Like, they, there needs to be someone driving the ship or multiple people driving the ship, or else there just isn't a band. Yeah, it sounds like kind of Liam was the creative genius type and Noel was the kind of the sort of ruthless frontman type. Okay, well, you know, hey, look, good for them. They're not my favorite, but they had a lot of success making music that sort of reminded people of the Beatles, but like 30 years later. <laughs> That's a perfect way. Right? It's like, hey, like, why is no one else making Beatles music? Beatles music was really good. Let's sit down and write Champagne Supernova. <laughs> good song, though. You, got, you have to admit yeah, that Yeah, it's one. a great, it's like, it's like one... the best Beatles song never recorded. I love I love Oasis. Um, I my oldest T-shirt is an Oasis T-shirt. I listen to them all the time. But I will say that um, I, I do understand the criticism that many Oasis songs share the same uh, characteristics. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give it that. I'll you, give critics. That. You could do worse. You could write a. You could have a worse song and keep playing that song. Yeah, absolutely. right. Because like every Matchbox Twenty song sounds the same, and they all sound terrible. Yeah. <laughs> no right. offense it's, to Mike Foss, our Nickelback former co-worker. sounds the same. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Sweet. Uh, let's get to some sports stuff. We got it's, – it's Tuesday, so we've got five questions about sports we want to tackle, or not necessarily sports. They're not all about sports. That's a, that's a spoiler alert. Uh, one of them isn't about sports. But, but give me – hit me with a sports question first. All right. So my first sports question is – why do so many people keep complaining about golf ratings, TV ratings? So I, I want to explain the context of this first because it's something that constantly comes up and it's extremely annoying to me. So the PGA Championship was last weekend. Um, this guy, Justin Thomas, who's kind of one of golf's like hot young things right now, won. And it was quite an entertaining tournament. At one point, there was a five-way tie for the lead. Um Next day, the ratings come out, and it ha I think it got a 3.8 rating, uh, which was the lowest since 2008. And it inevitably led to this tired argument that people tend to make, saying, um, oh, you know, this is, you know, golfers dying. This is indicative of golf's, like, bigger problems. It's not a 
game suited to a younger generation, yada, 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 sort of this constant knee-jerk reaction. Um, I know that world. I know that world. Golf, and this is why I wanted to bring it up. Golf does have some problems it needs to fix, absolutely. It does take too long on television. Um, uh, I don't, I think a lot is, uh, you know, people like to say now that, um, because tr- Donald Trump is such a divisive president, which he undoubtedly is, that that's going to drive people away from the game. I think in the long term, that's a bit overstated. I um, mean, come on. Like, like, come on. Just because, you know, that's, that's, look, I could give you all the Trump takes in the world. I don't think he's going to kill golf. Come on. Yeah, I know. It, exactly. And then, and then the, the other one is, th- th- so there's a few of them. Um, you know, people talk about how golf is sort of too high end. I don't necessarily think that having a sort of country club scene is bad for the game. The problem, you know, the same way I don't think... And when has it not been? When has not golf not been a country club sport? That's literally what you do at the country club. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, is that like... It, we ha- it's like saying you know food, the restaurant industry is broken because they have fine dining no like the problem with golf isn't that it has the, the fine dining option it doesn't have a proper cheap eats option okay um that's my they they have things that are starting to emerge but the problem is if me and you wanted to go play golf we would have to commit between four and seven hours and over a hundred dollars each probably um so like that's the problem that's about as cheap as you can get well, where do you golf because if you you golf at like the crappy public courses near where i grew up they're like 20 bucks yeah yeah okay so they're like, horrible they're covered yeah, they're, in in goose turds but yeah, they're they're well, it's just not a very fun it's just not a very fun sort of experience um so so you know and and not to mention that people don't grow up playing golf in schools right, right. so so, so there are all these things that golf needs to address, but I think it was just so frustrating seeing the same tired argument getting rehashed on uh, Monday after the PGA Championship. When in reality, golf is a niche sport that had its ver- it's a big niche sport, probably the biggest niche sport actually. But it was it's a niche sport that had its version of Michael Phelps come along and Tiger Woods, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so if you look at a 3.8 rating and you say it's the lowest rating since, since 2008, you know, it's, it's easy to then paint it with this brush of sports dying when in reality, these ratings are a reflection of the fact that, you know, we had a major news event happen over the course of the weekend in Charlottesville. So like you actually saw news, uh, you actually saw news ratings spike 25% on Saturday and Sunday, um, which obviously ate into into golf's ratings um 2007 incident oh sorry excuse me 2008 incidentally was the last major that uh, tiger woods skipped, last pga championship that two, tiger woods skipped so there's sort of there's no there's uh that's that, the lowest the lowest previous rating was before like tiger exactly so you're and since then we've had tiger lose in a playoff we've had rory mcelroy win two we've had jordan spieth win one and we've had two other new york based ones which all are booster ratings so what we're essentially talking about is the people who tuned in on sunday was the baseline golf hardcore um hardcore golf fan. people um, who would not know yeah no one was uh, uh this weekend no one who doesn't love golf was watching golf on tv Exactly. Maybe if Jordan Spieth was in the hunt, yeah, that would have been different. Maybe if there wasn't a different, if there wasn't a major sort of news event, yeah, maybe that would be different. But Justin Thomas doesn't move the needle because he's a 24-year-old kid who's an exciting young talent, but he's two years into his PGA Tour career. And I, I just think that these, this argument of using like a moment like this, which is 
so much more, which has so many more factors than people like to, uh, than people that a lot of people like to um, sort of delve into as a sort of blanket. Oh, the sport is dying. Lol. Like it just, it gets, it really gets on my nerves, and I just think it's intellectually like lazy, frankly. Yeah, I mean, and and I know from baseball that that is a constant thing, right? Everybody always points to national TV ratings, and meanwhile, I mean, you, it, it doesn't, it doesn't take that much more studying to realize that. Yeah, for all the national TV ratings are not maybe what they once were. First of all, that's true across networks and with all programming, right? Because there's just way more options on TV. When there were five channels and one of them was showing baseball, yeah, 20% of people watching TV were going to be watching baseball, right? Like that's, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's just the odds. Now you could watch Cake Wars or whatever else you want to watch on TV. And that's the only thing. I just watch baseball and Cake Wars. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's it for me. Uh, I watch I watch like hardcore cooking showdowns and baseball games. Uh, but, but uh, you know, if you look in baseball, at least at local ratings, teams do extremely well in markets. And the teams get, keep getting these massive, massive TV rights deals uh, that, that reflects, you know, just how well the game is actually doing. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, I think it, it is – I think it's lazy – to compare, I mean, Tiger Woods is the biggest golf phenomenon that has ever come along, right? Yeah. So and it's it's lazy to say, well, this tournament in, in which Tiger Woods, in which the golf guy isn't playing, is is shows that golf is dying because it, the ratings are so low. What golf needs is another dude like that to come along. Yeah, exactly. And between like Rory and Spieth, they'll probably get to a point that's similar to that one day. They're just all pretty young. But I think that that golf, well, until golf sorts out, as I said, it's sort of cheaper foods option and um, it starts getting adopted more in schools. So golf is always going to be on the larger end of the niche sports spectrum. Now, like I do not watch swimming, but I tune in for Michael Phelps. I don't watch running, but I will tune in um, to see Usain Bolt. And I think a lot, while golf is maybe closer to, say, uh, baseball in the sense that some people will tune in for an event like the Masters because it's the Masters, it still is going to be primarily star-driven because it's still, a, a, when push comes to shove, you know, there are no teams. This isn't, this isn't uh, the NFL it's still personality driven and star driven. And when you have a situation where um, you don't have your stars in the hunt at a given tournament, you're, what you're going to end up looking at is ratings that reflect the baseline audience of golf. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. We just need to like understand like what moves the needle in golf. And it's frustrating when people look at something like that and say that, oh, look, golf is dying because it has less, it has less viewers than a Tiger Woods when Tiger Woods won his major a few years ago. Like it's it's just so it's so lazy. Uh, I think boxing is probably in a similar uh, situation, right? And, and boxing, there's a, there's the added element of violence, which I think is probably, uh, especially now, how much we know about head injuries and the long-term effects of that stuff. You know, probably uh, if you look at a long-term projection, I would be a lot more bearish on boxing than golf. But I think that uh, when I was a kid, at least, you know, Mike Tyson was such a big deal. And I remember saying he was the best boxer, the best young boxer since since Muhammad Ali, and he's you know the the undisputed heavyweight champion, and he's this, you know, I mean, 
totally insane, but nonetheless really interesting personality. Now you have Floyd Mayweather, who seems by all accounts like just a bad dude, and also a really boring boxer to watch, right? I mean, technically incredible, I get that, but not like not fun, not like a really awesome, spectacular uh, event to watch. People will watch him fight Conor McGregor for the the curiosity factor, I'm sure. But I think that you know, with a, a big time, uh, uh, you know, uh, especially like you know, uh, Western European or American heavyweight who was knocking people out all the time, people would start watching boxing again. Yeah, and I think boxing is reflective of the same thing that goes on in golf where you have like the baseline audience for somebody who pays for a fight is actually smaller than golf yet every time that yet occasionally a Mayweather Pacquiao situation will crop along and um it will be the big what the biggest event in sports um or at least in the top sort of five that year so right. I, I and it's the same phenomenon that's going on people aren't tuning in for anything other than the fact that they they know these two transcendent personalities and that's why they're choosing to watch boxing this week um it's very much the similar motivations for um why people watch golf i buy it i buy it i you know i'm, I'm not a big golf guy you know that but and but and like I typically wind up catching like part of the Masters because it's the thing that's on, right? Like I imagine you catch part of the World Series because it's a thing that's on. But yeah. it's it's not the sport I watch. But from what I like, like my father-in-law, he's gonna watch every single golf event, right? Like he he sits down on a Sunday and watches golf. That's that's he's really into golf, and, and so he's not going away, right? Like that's not happening. And 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 my brother-in-law, for that matter, is not going away. Uh, they're going to be golf fans, but I think for, for getting me hooked, it would need like, oh, I want to see the best golf guy who's going to break all the golf records and, and exactly. be, you know, like be the next Tiger Woods. Exactly. It would be the same thing with me. It's like, okay, like, why do I tune into baseball to watch like the playoffs? Or if um, Mike Trout starts, you know, chasing the home run record or something, then I'm like, oh, I should probably tune in. Like, those are basically the those would be the two primary uh, factors for me um, for, for me tuning into something I wouldn't ordinarily watch. Well, that's a nice segue to my question, uh, which involves not Mike Trout, but another uh, young or now in his prime star of the game, uh, and a guy I think a lot of people were sort of waiting to do this, and now he's doing this. It's and it's John Carlos Stanton of the Miami Marlins uh, has long been, you know, the most powerful guy in the game, and and hits the biggest home runs uh, outside of perhaps Aaron Judge, uh, who is who is a newcomer to that that forum, but uh, Stanton. Has has 22 home runs in his last 34 games, which is a pace over the course of a season would be 105, which is outrageous. Uh, you, and no one could do that over the course of a season. And eventually they just stop pitching to you because no one wants to let up your 100th homer uh, when no one has previously hit more than 73. Uh, but now Stanton... Uh, in the midst of, of the best season of his career, uh, finally healthy after uh, several years uh, sort of riddled by injuries, uh, and signed to a massive contract. He, uh, he signed a $325 million extension a few years ago, but it was heavily backloaded. So uh, I believe the, the Marlins still owe him 10 years and $295 million. It's 
just about, I think it's the largest total contract in sports and, and huge on a per, per annum, annum basis as well. Uh, and he does have an opt-out after the 2020 season. Uh, if he hits like this, he'll probably take it because I think he could make even more money, which is insane. Uh, but uh, there's just news br- broke uh, from Yahoo Sports. Jeff Passan uh, reports that Stanton cleared trade waivers, which means uh, the Marlins can now trade him to any team. Uh, if you, you can do that before the July 31st trade deadline, and after July 31st, uh, you have to pass a guy through waivers. So if someone claims him, that's the only team you can trade him to. Uh, I think that the contract probably scared teams away because they, you know, they, they want to make sure, uh, I don't know, they make sure it all works out before, before they just sort of, uh, put a claim on him. And the Marlins with their ownership situation in flux might just be like, okay, fine, take him. You, now you have to pay him $300 million. Uh, good luck with that. Uh, so I guess my question is, uh, should the Marlins trade Giancarlo Stanton? But I don't imagine, I mean, w- do you have a take on that? I don't have a take on this. I'm interested to hear what you say. But I will say that um, something that just reading your uh, astute baseball analysis day after day, I have I've picked up on one very common theme, which I think is true across all of sports, but especially true in baseball, which is that over time, everything reverts back to the mean, right? And so, of course, everybody's mean is higher, but I don't know your take on this. Obviously, I'm about to find it out, but hearing that he's on track for a for a record that you said nobody would have a chance of breaking over. Well, and it, well, he's not going to do it because it was, so it, it would be, so he's on pace to hit 61 home runs this year, which is in itself phenomenal. Uh, he would be the first guy since the so-called steroid era and only the sixth guy ever to do that. Uh, it's the 105 home run paces, just his last 34 games, but uh, nonetheless, well, yeah. Nonetheless, so even so, let's say his mean is higher than sort of your average, uh, you know, major leaguers mean, which is obviously true um it does because he's batting so well to the point where he could opt out of the biggest contract in sports in what a, few, a couple of years it's and this contract sounds like it's incredibly backloaded it does seem to suggest that his stock is about as high as it's probably ever going to be um so it may, may it sounds like from an extremely like uninformed perspective that cashing in on something like that more often than not isn't a bad idea and you're right and in that case you're right right but he is he isn't gonna be this good and he is like no one's gonna hit 105 home runs in a season no one's gonna maintain 105 home run pace for too long it's just not gonna happen so this is probably you know the this is certainly the best he's looked in the majors and this is maybe the peak of his value uh but i think that part of the problem with that and and maybe in 2003 you could have feasibly sold high on a player but every single major league front office now understands the concept that the Marlins would be selling high on John Carlos Stanton and so i think they would only pay for his mean uh and my take on it is that the Marlins and and again he's going to be it's not a it's not a big budget team. Uh, there's a case to be made that it should be a larger budget team. Uh, Miami is a it should be a great baseball market. It hasn't been, uh, but 
Jeffrey Loria, who is the was is the outgoing owner, uh, is selling the team to Derek Jeter and some way richer guy uh, in and and they're going to change hands in October. And I have a I have a tendency to assume that that team is going to get a lot more popular once Loria is gone. Uh, he has his reputation is for bilking taxpayers in Miami out of tons and tons of money, uh, including 2.5 million for that that home run thing, which I love, uh, but a lot of people hate. Uh, and and you know I think a billion dollars or something close for the for the stadium, uh, which also seized a lot of land in eminent domain. So I think a new owner means a fresh start for a Miami community that is heavily Cuban and Cuban people love baseball. Every, you know, that's, that is the sport in Cuba. We've seen it with all of these Cuban players, uh, heavily Latino in general, uh, baseball, obviously very popular, uh, in a lot of Latin American countries. I think that Miami is ripe to be a much better baseball market. And I also think that they can f- feasibly sort of hope that he will opt out out of 2020 and, try to win within the next few years in this window. Because uh, to me, like if you look at the Marlins, they've got a good offense. They've got a, a good core of players. They have Stanton and Christian Yellick and Mar- Marcelo Azuna in the, in the outfield. Those are really good players. They've got a good catcher. They've got a good first baseman. They don't have a lot of pitching, and that's sort of the, the holdup. Uh, there's a tragic aspect to it, too, in that Jose Fernandez was their ace, and he died last year. Um, so there's, there's things they need to figure out. But if you look at the National League East, the Washington Nationals are, are the one good team right now. They have a very short window of contention. Bryce Harper is set for free agency after next season. They got a bunch of old players, a bunch of veterans, a bunch of guys who are going to leave. Uh, so if I'm the Marlins right now, and, and again, like the ownership situation dictates a lot of this, but I don't want to trade him. I want to I want to hang on to the hope that this is the real Giancarlo Stanton now, that the adjustment he made in his swing is means he's going to be the top power hitter in baseball, uh, which he has been at times, but, you know, for, for a prolonged period, that the freak little injuries he's had, he's been, he's been hit in the face with a baseball, he's uh, broken, you know, he's, he's had, it's, it's not been uh, any sort of chronic thing that's kept him off the, the field. So you can hope, okay, you know, 27 years old, it's his time, uh, he's made this adjustment to his swing, it's an era in which guys are hitting tons of home runs, he is a guy who hits tons of home runs, maybe he's just going to hit more now and you try to win within the next three years because I think I don't know that you're going to get more for him now than you would next year at this time given that the the contract isn't going anywhere and so I'm holding my Giancarlo Stanton and trying to win and 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 I hope you know with uh, Derek Jeter sort of steering the ship there and and uh, and some money behind him the Marlins instead of trading him just try to go all in for next year and the following year because I would like to see that team succeed. I think it would be cool if Miami had a good baseball team that people loved. It, it is interesting what you say. I think um, it, it's funny. One point, one thing that Stephen and I, long-standing debate between Stephen and I was whether the Vikings should have traded for Sam Bradford last year. Um, and I think that what you just said speaks to the same motivations that drove that argument. And um, the people, people like Stephen, who's incredibly smart and incredibly analytics driven, and while I am too, you know, he's very, he's very much like look at the data, sort of moneyball 
Um, I do think that, and I can imagine baseball, my point is I can imagine baseball, a lot of the argument in baseball is driven like that too. Like, oh, he's at the peak of his value, should probably trade him away and cash in. But I think often people who, who tout that line so hard often forget what you're talking about. Like, it may be a good business move in terms of um, accumulating value and then cashing in on it to, to trade him right now. But the, the, you're not running you're not running a sort of a, a, a an asset management company. Right, you're, it's not the stock market, right? You're yeah, not going to exactly. necessarily find a buyer. Exactly. Like, if you think you have a chance of winning now, there is no point making your team worse now um, simply because you're cashing in on value. You know, there's, there, there, there is such a thing as sort of, a, a, in, I guess, intangible value is the wrong word, but there, but but. There, there is no point having a tr making a trade that may get you a few more picks in three years when if you've just sacrificed your only chance of winning between uh, if that if that requires you as uh, trading away your only chance of winning for the next seven years like right. and yeah and especially in baseball like the, the you know the prospect game is so finicky you know and so they could feasibly trade Giancarlo Stanton to I don't know like you know probably there aren't a lot of teams who would even have the type of young talent that the Marlins would require in a trade but say they trade him to the Red Sox which are one of the few contending teams that does uh, there's a reasonably good chance none of those guys they get back wind up combined as good as Giancarlo Stanton will be. Yeah, exactly. And it's like you say, in, if you look at things in terms of a stock market, which often sports players are uh, sort of compared that way, it makes sense cashing out on your value and then just starting again. But th there is that sort of always that cycle is always working in perpetuity on the stock market. Whereas in sports, like you're, you're essentially using that method to try to achieve a goal, right? And if you think that this guy can give you a chance, if you think this team is a few good players away and you and you have a guy who, sure, like you may be leaving some value on the table, especially long term, but you're willing to do that because your your goal is not, your, your primary goal is not creating value. It's, it's in winning a championship. And I think that um, the window of opportunity only opens in very short, for very short periods of time in professional sports, and it's um, and, and it's sort of about it's fine leaving some long-term value on the table if you can maximize your sort of value right now. Yeah, um, that's a yeah. I, I'm I'm with you. Uh, we're a half hour deep, and we're only on two questions, and I just spilled coffee. Um, so let's get, <laughs> keep going. Give me a, a second question. All right. So this this should be a very, very pretty straightforward one. Um, Wondering, what are your favorite regions to host sports events? Or I guess we can come at this from the perspective of as a as a baseball writer, but also as just a sports reporter. When you get given an assignment and you say you need to go to X, like where are the places you really enjoy going to? Because it's just a really fun experience for you and for fans. Uh, Chicago jumps to mind. Chicago, you know, especially like at, at Wrigley Field is is such a fun thing. Uh, it's funny the the White Sox play-by-play -play guy Hawk Harrelson has recently come out and been like, they should tear down Wrigley Field and get rid of it because it's a horrible place and the press box is too small. The press box is too small. It, it's it's not the best. I watched the, the World Series games there from like the third to worst seat in all of Wrigley Field because that's where they set up the auxiliary press box. It was still really awesome. I mean, it's just a cool atmosphere, a cool neighborhood, and Chicago is a great city. For me, a lot of it has to do with 
can I get food after the game in this place? And, and when you're covering a night baseball game, especially a postseason game, they tend to run three and a half hours long. You spend another hour and a half, two hours after the game working. So it's after midnight by the time you're trying to eat food. And, and in a lot of places, uh, especially Cleveland, you can't get food. Like there was just in Cleveland, there was one pizzeria that was open after after midnight. And other than that, it was like the, you have no other options for food. Um, so that's a big one for me. Uh, other fun cities, I, you know, I like L.A. a lot, and I like, I don't love driving, but I like the the fact that L.A. too has so much different, so many different things going on, a lot of late night stuff. I would love to cover a sporting event in New Orleans because that's my favorite city in the country. Baseball doesn't really exist there, sadly. And I'm trying to think. Um, I don't know. Mostly for me, it's more about places I don't want to go than places I do want to go. But at this point in the baseball season, my rooting interest becomes like, okay, where do I want to hang out in the postseason? And yeah, so it's it's funny. So I'm about to actually hop to Iowa later th- uh, tomorrow to go cover the golf tournament there. And while I, you know, I've never been to Iowa, I'm not sure what I'm going to think of Iowa. I did just come back from North Carolina, which is similar in this respect that um i think for golf tournaments i completely understand what you're saying that going to well so uh, golf tournaments are usually going to be like outside the city proper exactly and so like i think it makes sense that you're saying i like to go to chicago because Wrigley feels awesome as a good city makes total sense for a golf tournament because it requires so much outdoor space there's sort of it's it's kind of a rural thing i'm going to a place like the southeast or it's actually a really fun experience because Usually the roads aren't very congested to begin with, and there's a lot of highways. Um, it's pretty easy to sort of get in and out. There's a lot of land for things like parking, which is obviously really important in a golf tournament. Um, the courses, you know, one thing that a lot of old courses in the Northeast run into is the fact that they were built so long ago that the literal plots of land aren't actually that big. So it makes like moving around within the grounds really annoying for spectators. Whereas when you go to a course like in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, which is just where I was. Um, it's a very big course. It makes like it means that the bigger the course is, the, the better the views are for fans. The easier it is to move around. Um, weather's hot but nice. So um, I, I really genuinely enjoy going to sort of the south and the southeast for um, for golf tournaments. Um, yeah, I guess it, with golf tournaments, there's not like a there's not going to be a, a big city at, at, at atmosphere to it. Yeah, right? like. You know, when they say the tournament, you know, the U.S. Open is in Chicago this year, what they're saying is the U.S. Open is 45 minutes outside of Chicago. Right. Uh, and so, yeah. So for me, it's because I like I mean, I basically like places that kind of remind me of New York, you know, which is my my own uh, regionalism, I guess. But so I like places where I can walk to stuff, where I can get food late and where there are like people around and like stuff to see and I can people watch. Yeah, see, like, that's just, it's, the dynamic is so different and um, in golf because you're just so far, you know, you have to, like, go into the city if you want to go see the city, really, whereas, like, in the south, you just go to your, like, barbecue joint, the food's good, and it's pretty easy to get around because traffic just isn't really a thing, um, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at the post now. Now you've inspired me to look at the post at uh, the the teams currently in line for the postseason in baseball. Uh, Boston, fine. Uh, Boston's kind of a pain just to get around, and and it happens that there are very few hotels near Fenway Park, so I'm down huh. on that. Uh, Houston, I haven't spent enough time in to really say, but uh, not the 
best place I've been. I what I do like about Houston is Kalachis, which is a type of savory pastry that you can get there. Uh, I'm all about that. Um, Arizona is fine. Uh, Denver would be sweet. I would be psyched about that. Chicago would be cool. DC is okay. Uh, I'm down on Cleveland. I just spent a lot of Cleveland time in Cleveland last year, and as you know already, I'm I'm down on St. Louis. Down on St. Louis. <laughs> That's I one just, thing I know. I've spent enough time in St. Louis. I've spent enough time in St. Louis. I've also spent I, – I happen to really like Kansas City, but I'd rather see new places, so I've spent enough time in Kansas City too. Is, is that the root of the St. Louis thing, is that you've just spent so much time covering the Cardinals that you've just grown sick of it? No. Um, <laughs> no. Because I don't think I would get sick. Like, like I would happily go back to L.A. to cover the Dodgers, and I've spent a lot of time in L.A. recently. Uh, it's – I mean, St. Louis has, like, there's, like, the one little area around the ballpark, the downtown area, and there's, like, one sort of strip near Washington University that's okay, but – there's just like not a lot of places where you want to be sort of out and walking around. It's, I guess I, I'm more drawn to like cities like that. I feel like a, a lot of the action is sort of in the suburbs and I want places with a walkable downtown area. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, all right. Uh, that was a, that's a good segue to your last question. So let's, let's just jump right to that. Last the my last one. I just got back from Charlotte, North Carolina, which has its own sort of uh, it has it's very proud of its own uh, style of barbecue. So I was just curious to pick your mind. What are your favorite kinds of barbecue? I'm gonna throw a curveball at you. Okay, let's are you ready? Because because the big ones, the Carolinas, right? And there's there's like Eastern Carolina and Western Carolina, so and South Carolina. Uh, so you have like the there's like some are mustard based, some are vinegar based, uh, very pork heavy in the Carolinas. Uh, Texas, Memphis, Kansas City are are the other big ones. My uh, and and this is an up and comer, and and I don't I'm not ready to say it's my absolute favorite. I think Texas is probably still my favorite because it is so uh, beef heavy and so like so focused on the meat. Um, but Alabama barbecue is really good. Alabama uses a white sauce barbecue that's, uh, it's like mayonnaise based, which I know will turn some people off, but it's mayonnaise and vinegar and, and some horseradish and some garlic. I actually have taken to making it at home a lot. Uh, and I I really like, I had a great barbecue in Alabama one of the times I've been there and I, I've really just like that has become sort of the default barbecue style uh, in my house, and so so I uh, I will throw in uh, I will I will throw in a nod to Alabama style barbecue. Interesting. So yeah, so I am totally biased. I spend a lot of time down south, specifically in South Carolina. So I love the mustard based uh, barbecue sauce mm-hmm. um, and the, the pulled pork. Um, you know, it's what they serve the masters, and you know, a lot of sentimental value attached, admittedly, but. Um, yeah, I, I've only read about white-based barbecue sauces. So what 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 are they exactly? Um, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's like a, it's a very thin sauce. Like it's almost like uh, what it would be the base of coleslaw if you didn't put cabbage in, and huh. instead you like grilled up some chicken and dipped it in that sauce. 
Um, and it comes out like, especially like the way I do it, I always like baste during the cook and it comes out like extremely juicy and it's got this like nice tangy flavor to it, a little bit of garlic to it. Uh, I just, I really like the flavor. My, my wife happens to really like it too. So it's something we sort of agree on. So it's become a really easy thing. Uh, and it's also really easy to prepare. You just, you know, like it's all stuff I have. It's, it's mayonnaise, vinegar, lemon juice, uh, you know, horseradish, maybe, uh, and some garlic. Interesting. So what are your least favorite kinds? I'm not crazy about this sort of straight vinegar style barbecue. Yeah, I think that I think that North Carolina barbecue and people in North Carolina, I know, are take it really seriously. But our our boss who lived in North Carolina is no longer our boss. So uh, I can say I think North Carolina barbecue is a little bit overrated. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not crazy about Um, I think Memphis barbecue is overrated, too. Huh, how, how come? Well, it's – so Mem- Memphis barbecue, they cook it over – like they cook it over charcoal, not not smoked in wood. And I have found that the the ribs tend to be kind of tough. Like I like my ribs – I like the ribs to have like a little bit of chew to it. But um, and when I've had barbecue in Memphis, it's, it's like a little bit tougher and like I think it's cooked hotter. Then a lot of like then it's not necessarily like the sort of low and slow cooking that you're accustomed accustomed to with most barbecues. So I would say that is a little overrated. Kansas City, I think adequately rated. It's good. It's the sauce is a little too sweet for me, and that's why I would go with Texas in terms of the major ones, just because it's it's not covered in sort of the sweet goop. Yeah, I was about to say I don't think you can say that like Kansas City is like underrated in terms of barbecue because it's such a massive player but i am a bit of a sucker for like the molasses and and stuff so i do i do like kansas city quite one one aspect of carolina barbecue i like is when they do whole hog barbecue so you get like the little pieces of pork skin in there and it has like a little bit of crunch to it i like that a lot yeah yeah no that's a good call um i'm trying to think of of other barbecue styles uh I think Kentucky, they, they cook a lot of lamb. And then, like, California, they do tri-tip. Uh, I think that's a little bit over. Like, everybody I know from California is like, oh, no, you got to try the tri-tip. The tri-tip is the best thing. It's, like, pretty tough. And I don't know. I just, for me, I would much rather have, like, brisket or beef ribs or, like, even, like, pulled chuck. Like, pulled beef is, is another sort of low-key, really good barbecue meat. Yeah, I'm sure Iowa has its own style, so I'll be sure to check it out. You so you alerted me to the fact that in Iowa, uh, sort of fried pork chop sandwiches are a thing, and they look phenomenal. So. Yeah, it's a that's the best thing, right? Like anything fried on a bun is going to be good. Oh yeah, and especially like just like fried pork chops are really good in themselves too. So just kind of serving them in a burger type, I, I, it kind of made me wonder like why aren't there more of these places floating around? Or maybe they are, and I'm just missing. Them. Yeah, I looked it up, and the place you want to go, I guess, in Des Moines, and I haven't been there, but I trust uh, Jen and Michael Stern, who write the Road Food series of books. Uh, I trust them 100%. They have yet to steer me wrong, and they recommend Smitty's in Des Moines. Okay. So if you get a chance, go to Smitty's in Des Moines. All right. I will. I, I literally, um, every time I go to a new place, you know, because Ted has been to like 57 states. Uh, there I always... are not 57 states. That's, that's, <laughs> that's varieties of Heinz. There are only 50 states. I know that, obviously. I've, um, been, to, but, I've uh, been to 47 states. 46 or 47. 46 or 47. You... 
Yeah, so he's been to 62 states. And, um, you know, so odds are that if I have a question about, um, you know, certain food, and and even the states you haven't been to, you seem to know just so much about this stuff. So every time I'm like about to go on the road to somewhere I haven't been before, or even a place I have, I'm like, Ted, where should I go? Instantly, you alerted me to Smitty. So I'm looking forward to it. Do I steer you wrong? And I told you without looking it up, I was like, oh, the thing in Iowa is fried pork on a sandwich. Exactly. And like, it's a, it, all I can say is a good thing. I didn't ask you these exact questions about a month ago and on my way to Miami because, you know, I would have been like, Ted, you know, what do I do when I need some, so, so I need to pick me up in the afternoon for a, for a good price and, and a, you know, good portion size. Um, I would not have gotten a good coffee take. Uh, yeah. Everyone <laughs> in Miami can go to hell with their coffee. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's basically the long and short of it. All right. Last question and we'll keep it quick, but, uh, Joey Votto, who is a excellent player on the Cincinnati Reds, uh, is also a really, I think, smart and funny guy. Uh, and, and sort of funny in like a dry and low-key way. But one thing he has done somewhat frequently across his career, especially in the last few years, is troll opposing fans. And he's done it a bunch of different ways. One time, a paper airplane came onto the field when he was playing in, I don't know where he was, uh, but not in Cincinnati. And he sort of like angrily stomped the paper airplane and everybody booed him and he crumpled it up and put it in his pocket and like sort of gestured to the crowd like he's a wrestling heel. Uh, He loves doing something Bryce Harper does as well, which is uh, faking like he's going to give the ball to a fan and then putting in his glove and running it back to the dugout. Um, and and uh, yesterday in a, in a game in L.A., uh, he got a, he picked up a foul ball and just sort of made a motion like he was going to like throw it as far as he could and as hard as he could and into the crowd and then sort of deked everybody and wound up just sort of lobbing it there. But I talked to Votto about it at the All-Star game, and he said, which turned out to be a lie now, uh, he said he wasn't doing it anymore because the Reds are bad and he doesn't want to do it on a bad team. So my question is, is it okay to be like a heel or to have fun, to, to de- demonstrate yourself being a little bit silly if you're playing for a last place team? If you're playing for a last place team, but you're, I think it all, I think it comes down to individual ability, right? Like, I think you have to be good in order to be doing it. Otherwise, it just comes He's off. He's extremely as, good. Yeah, yeah. So I think, like, even if his team is bad, like, I don't think that necessarily matters. I think it matters that he's good. Um, and he obviously is. So, um, yeah, I'm all for. I'm all for sort of diversity of every in every shape and form in sports. So uh, I I love the fact that there are sort of villains and there are heroes and there are you know there are smart people and there are sort of straightforward people and all and everything in between. So um, I have no problem with a player who wants to mess with fans who are on his own because um, because it makes him because it's funny because it just adds another element to the game that's fun to cover fun to read about fun to talk about yeah I love it I mean I wish more guys did stuff like that right just have some fun you're playing a sport it's for fun Every, the whole thing exists for fun I don't see what's wrong with having fun I do get annoyed like I remember uh, and I, I I hate using him as an example because he, he has since passed away but there was a pitcher named Jose Lima who was uh, after a couple of good seasons to start his career sort of perennially the worst pitcher in the league. And Lima was just this outrageously expressive guy. And every time he got a strikeout, he would carry on, like, all this crazy stuff just happened, and, like, look at what I just did. And then, like, he'd let up three home runs immediately. And that always bothered me a lot, because it was like you kind of have to back it up if you're going to carry on like that.
like that. Uh, and that's mostly just like an aesthetic thing. Like I, I think probably in retrospect, I would, and now I might find it more entertaining. But at the time, I was like, oh, come on, Jose Lima, you're killing me. Why are you doing this? Um, and so, yeah, I think you're right. Like you have to be good. But if you're Joey Votto, and like Joey Votto is also like, ridiculously handsome and extreme, like, very smart. He speaks three languages. He hired a Spanish tutor to teach him to speak Spanish so he can be friends with his, his Spanish-speaking teammates. Like, he is, a, he seems like a, both a good dude and a smart dude and, like, a guy who's got everything going for him. So it makes him, like, the perfect wrestling heel type guy. Yeah, and, like, you know, if you're not good in doing it, like the guy you just mentioned, um, I, it's it just, that's just a very quick efficient formula to getting people to really not like you very much you know i think that if you're good you can cut it just all plays into your character you know and some people will love like a showboating element some people love the more understated element. but yeah if, if you're not good but you're sort of um if you're kind of pulling antics but you're not very good it just it, i i think it's a pretty small pool of people who'd be like yeah i like that he um goads the crowd into things even though he hits you know 200 <laughs> right right yeah, people would people would lose patience for that probably a lot of opposing players like probably joey Votto can get away with a lot of stuff that might get a lesser player beamed but baseball players respect how good you are so like they'll let you get away with it yeah i just don't know who likes like oh yeah i like that he's bad but thinks that he's amazing <laughs> yeah um, well, there was, there was a guy, and he wasn't a horrible player, but uh, and he's still sort of kicking around. I think he shows up every now and then, Niger Morgan, who who did sort of, like, he had this alter ego named Tony Plush, and he, like, sort of always carried on in bizarre ways. And I did find that super entertaining, and he wasn't a great player by any stretch. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I guess it, it just depends on the guy and the team and, and how, what he's doing. Like, I always just thought the Tony Plush stuff was sort of harmless fun. Uh, it was Jose Lima. It was just how bad he was. That really bothered me more than anything else. So, um, Luca, it's been good. It's been a pleasure, Ted, as always. Uh, you can check out the Four Limb Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, rate us, review us, do all that stuff. You can check out Luke. You're going to be in Des Moines. What are you covering in Des Moines? I'm covering the Solheim Cup, which is the uh, the equivalent for women's golf of the Ryder Cup. So America versus Europe. So I'm looking forward to a resounding European victory. Oh, yeah. Is that conflicting for you or are you just 100% on the side of Europe? I won't go into it all, but I will say that it definitely has become more. It was a lot easier when I had spent 13 straight years in England. I knew where my loyalties lie. Right. But now that I have... Um, you know, American colleagues, and I and I live in America. Oh, come on! Having American colleagues should make you less likely to root for the U.S. <laughs> it just—it definitely has, like, you know, it's it's it's. I'm like, it's a weird sensation because you're both kind of rooting for both sides and wanting to see both sides to fail. Um, yeah, and so it it actually does make it a little tough. But you know, I guess when push comes to shove, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty pro Europe in these situations. Yeah, I mean, I know, but see, see, I'm like at least for the Olympics, I root against the U.S. like all, all the time. <laughs> 100% of the time, because we're the, we're the favorites in everything, right? And I root for the underdogs. Like, I would much rather see, like, Cameroon beat the U.S. in something <laughs> than watch another U.S. gold medalist. It's boring. You should start checking that off on, like, you know, on, like, official government documents, like nationality underdog. <laughs> right, yeah, I just root for, I don't want to root for the U.S. It's like rooting, it's rooting for the Yankees. It's no fun. <laughs> All right, Luke, uh, thank you very much for joining me. Have fun in Des Moines. Please eat fried pork sandwiches. I will. Thanks for the tip, Ted. Peace out.